morning. All right, we are in Mark 15, Mark chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 33 through 41, finishing up the last part of this chapter. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of those blue church Bibles located underneath the seats around you. Turn to page 853 in that blue Bible. That'll bring you right to our text this morning. I titled this message, The Final Hour. The Final Hour. I found this quote. It'll pop up here on the screen. Just read it with me uh, or follow along as I read it. It says, A man dies. Only a few circles in the water prove that he was ever there. And even they quickly disappear. And when they're gone, he's forgotten without a trace, as as if he'd never even existed. And that's all. Generally speaking, beloved, that is true. I know some of us think we're a really big deal, but a hundred years from now, no one will remember you. It is estimated that 55.3 million people die each year. 55.3 million people die each year. That breaks down to 105 each minute, or two almost every second. People pass from this world. The reality is most people will pass from this life in obscurity. In obscurity. Their death will come and go and in a relatively short period of time they will be completely forgotten. That's just the reality of things. That's just the truth. But here we are. 2,000 years after his death still talking about Jesus. He has not been forgotten, nor will He ever be. Not just because of His exceptional life or His supernatural resurrection, but more importantly, beloved, because of His extraordinary death. This morning we are going to narrow in on Jesus' final Hour, the hour that he finally expired or died on the cross. Now let me give you a little bit of context and then we'll read the text that we're looking at this morning. Just to remind you, due to the pressure of the religious leaders and the insistence of the screaming crowds, Pilate, the Roman governor, ordered Jesus to be crucified. Around 9 a.m. on Friday morning, Jesus was nailed to a cross and left there to suffer and die. Jesus would hang on that cross for approximately six hours before he gave up his life, before he died. Our text today in Mark takes us right to the final hour, or as Mark refers to it, the ninth hour, which would be 3 p.m., the hour when Jesus breathed his last breath. So if you're there in the text with me, follow as I read along from God's holy word in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger of Joseph and Salome. 
When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. That's the end of our text. Just a quick note, the women here that are mentioned in verses 40 and 41, we will not be discussing them today. Mark's mention of them here appears to be in anticipation of their role in Jesus' burial and resurrection, which Mark describes next, beginning in chapter 16. So we'll look at those women in the coming weeks. This morning, we're going to examine four, and this is in your outline, four significant events that occurred at the close of Jesus' crucifixion so that we might better understand and appreciate Jesus Christ for who He is and what He accomplished on the cross. The first significant event that occurred at the close of Jesus' crucifixion, I'll just run through them, is the sky's condition. Second, the strange cry. Third, the severed curtain. And fourth, the soldier's confession. So that's our outline for this morning. That's where we're going. You ready? Okay, a few of you are. The rest of you, just join us. This is a good study. This is a good study. First, the sky's condition. The sky's condition. Look back at the text with me in Mark 15:33. It says, When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Luke's Gospel records it this way. Luke 23, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. Mark says that this darkness began at the sixth hour or around noon. Around noon and extended to the ninth hour or around three. But beloved, noon is the time of the day when the sun is typically the highest or at its highest point in the sky. So why is the sky dark? Why does it appear to be like night? Why does it appear that the sun's light has even failed? Well, let me say this. There is a great amount of mystery in some of the events that took place during Jesus' crucifixion. This is one of those mysterious events. However, there are a few things to consider that I believe will shed some light on this question. Why the darkness and why then? Why the darkness and why then? The first thing for us to consider as Bible students is there are several passages in Scripture that link the manifestation of darkness, the appearance of darkness, or the idea of darkness, or the absence of light with God's eminent or immediate judgment. His judgment. We're going to look at just a few of those. In other words, darkness and judgment are closely tied together in the Scriptures. For example, Amos chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. A text about God's judgment. There it says, And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun, that is a sun who expires, dies, and the end of it like a bitter day. Again, just reading the text without trying to get into what's all that's going on here. It is a text about God's judgment and you see this connection with the darkness. How about Zephaniah? Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Again, we read, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. You may also remember, and there's other passages that we could look at, but you may also remember that just prior to the fulfillment 
of this in Exodus 12.12. Let me remind you of it. Just prior to the fulfillment of this, I'll read it for you. Exodus 12.12, where we read that the Lord will pass through the land of Egypt that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Just prior to that event happening, God said this in Exodus 10.21-22, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch, darkness. What is God judging? Answer, His Son. His Son, Jesus Christ. Why? What did His Son do? Nothing. His Son did nothing. But Scripture informs us of these things and we sing about them almost every Sunday morning. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says, He Himself, that is Christ, Jesus, bore, took upon Himself, our sins in His body on the tree. A reference to the cross. Again, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it was read during our time of Scripture reading. The text there says, For our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Isaiah 53, verses 5-6 through There as we read a prophecy about the suffering Messiah, we read this, but He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him laid on Him, Christ, the iniquity, the sin of us all. Isaiah 53.10 adds, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. To crush His Son. He has put Him to grief when His soul makes an offering for guilt. His guilt? No. Isaiah 53.12 Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, a robber on his left and on his right. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I am convinced, beloved, that the darkness at the cross was a sign of God's judgment upon Jesus as He hung and took God's wrath against sin as a substitute for sinners. He bore our sins, our guilt, and suffered the just wrath of God that our sins so rightly deserve. And that introduces us to the second significant event that occurred at the close of Jesus' crucifixion. That is, His strange cry. His strange cry. Look back at the text with me. Mark fifteen thirty-four. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus' words here are mysterious and they are not easy to explain or fully understand. I'm going to say that right at the beginning. We have what appears here to be Mark translating into Greek. You see it in the English. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There in the original in the Greek. In this other phrase in Aramaic, it appears that these may have been Jesus' actual words in the Aramaic, so he translates them into Greek for his readers. But that is not what makes this, strain, this cry strange. 
That's not the strange part about it. What makes it hard to understand is figuring out all that is going on behind the scenes. What we can't see that would cause Jesus to feel forsaken or deserted and cry out to God His Father asking why He had abandoned Him. What in the world could disrupt the perfect relationship and union of God the Father and God the Son. One writer says the statement really just lies beyond human comprehension. And I would say yes. That is true. I agree with that. Another says this. The depths of the saying are too deep to be plumbed. But the least inadequate interpretations, the least inadequate interpretations, are those which find in it a sense of desolation in which Jesus felt the horror of sin so deeply that for a time the closeness of His communion with the Father was obscured or hidden. What Jesus was expressing, beloved, was the incomprehensible realities of being the Holy and Righteous One. That's who He is. The Holy and Righteous One. The Sinless One. But then, being made sin for us. Taking our sin, our guilt, all of it, upon Himself. Bearing God's judgment for that sin in full. And in that process, experiencing something that Jesus had never before. Abandonment by His Holy Father. One writer adds this, The burden of the world's sin, His complete self-identification with sinners, involved not merely a felt, but a real abandonment by His Father. That's hard for me to even try to get my mind around to understand. Another writer adds this, I think it's worth pointing it out to you. In that dark hour, God's wrath fell upon Him. Because wrath is no abstract principle. It just means it's not some theoretical idea. God's wrath is real, concrete, and must be poured out against rebellion, sin. Because it is no abstract principle, but a personal manifestation, this means that His unclouded communion, that is Jesus, with the Father, enjoyed from all eternity on that cross, in that final hour, was temporarily broken. If there was a barrier between the Father and the Son at that moment, it could only be because of sin. And the Son knew no sin. So it could only be our sin that cost Him such agony. And here is the heart of the cross. Here is the mystery which no painting or sculpture with distorted face can ever begin to show. Because we fail to realize the true nature of the punishment for sin as separation from God. And therefore the true nature and depth of the agony Born by Jesus. One more. Experientially, we who are sinners cannot understand what it means for Jesus who knew no sin to be made sin on our behalf. We just have a hard time even relating to such things. Nor can we who have so often broke communion with God feel the trauma of separation that is not of Jesus' choosing. Beloved, that brings us right to the third point. 
the severed curtain. The severed curtain. Look back at the text with me. Mark 15, verses 37 through 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed His last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Okay. I'm going to take a drink of water for this one. I need you to really focus with me because we're going to... I could give you a very simple one-sentence explanation for what I think is going on here. But I want you to have a little more than that because it's pretty amazing. So just kind of take some of this stuff in, start to think it through. We'll try to tie it all back together here in a moment. We know from the other Gospels that before Jesus died or breathed His last, He said a few more things. He said, Father, into Your hands I commit Your Spirit. We find that in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, verse 46. He also said that famous statement that preachers love to use, it is finished. Very powerful. He said that in John 19.30. Possibly the order is reversed. Maybe he said, it is finished first and, and ended with, Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit. We don't know the exact order. But what was finished? And we've talked about this before, so just by way of review, what, what was completed? What was done? Why was Jesus now ready to breathe His last? What had He accomplished? Well, we know that Jesus had drank the cup of His Father's wrath all the way down to the bottom. He left nothing to the dregs. He drank His Father's wrath against sin. And you remember that it was this that He grieved over in the Garden of Gethsemane. Preached a message called Glory in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let me remind you of this passage here in Mark 14, 34-36. And He said to them, Jesus to His disciples on this, this night, late Thursday night into Friday morning, the same Friday that He's being crucified, praying here in this garden. He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And, and going a little further, He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from Him. And He said, Abba, an expression of... It's like saying, Daddy. Father, all things are possible for You. Remove this cup from Me. Yet not what I will, but what You will. And we know that Jesus was resolved to drink that cup, to drink it to its fullest, to do His Father's will, to face His Father's wrath for the sin of His people. Jesus had endured, beloved, God's wrath against sin in full. And as a result, when He said it was finished, this is what it means, He secured forgiveness, redemption, and salvation for sinners. Beloved. So what does the curtain of the temple being severed or torn in two parts, two pieces, have to do with all of that? That is a great question. I'm glad you asked it. I am convinced that this was a picture, a picture or a physical illustration of a spiritual reality, of something that could not be seen in the physical realm, but really happened in the spiritual realm as a result of the cross, as a result of what Jesus did on that cross reality of what He accomplished by dying as the perfect substitute for sinners. Let me try to explain this. The temple. We're told that it was the curtain in the temple. The veil in some translations. It was torn in two. The temple in Jerusalem was the central place where the Jews worshipped God. And they brought their sacrifices to the priest who in turn 
offered them up to God on behalf of the people for their sin. For their sin. This sacrificial system was conducted to, according to the laws that God gave to the nation of Israel that we find in the Old Testament. But the system, beloved, now listen, the system was never designed or intended to be the solution for humanity's sin problem. But rather it served as a continual reminder of the seriousness of sin and the desperate need for a lasting solution, a permanent solution that would provide complete and everlasting forgiveness and allow people to be reconciled to God once and for all. Additionally, the sacrificial system was only a shadow, a shadow of something greater, something better that was to come. You might think I'm making that all up, but I'm not. It's here in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. There we read God's Word. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The law, beloved, there in verse 1, it stands for the whole Old Testament with particular reference in this context to the sacrificial system. The writer is saying then that the sacrificial system is only a shadow of something. A shadow of something in that it points to a greater reality or some greater substance. Stay with me. Stay with me. One writer says this, The author is saying that the law is no more than a preliminary sketch. It shows the shape of things to come but the solid reality is not there. It is in Christ. It is in Christ. Now, if that doesn't make sense to you yet, stick with me. Beyond that, when we see that the writer says in Hebrews 10.1, make perfect those who draw near. Can't possibly make perfect those who draw near. He's, he doesn't mean sinless perfection. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the definitive removal of guilt. Definitive, final, absolute, complete. The complete removal of guilt. These sacrifices could not do that. And that is what is necessary in order for us to have free access to God. And it is the removal, complete and utter removal of guilt that makes access to God possible for worshipers who trust in the sufficiency of the cross. Now, I'm going to show you the temple picture here, and it's going to be... I should have blown it up, so that's going to be very hard for some of you to see. This is a... Now, we're back to the temple. Just remember what we said so far. Shadow of things to come. Christ is the substance. Sacrifices after year and year. The blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. They can't... They can't take away a person's guilt. They only remind them of their sin. And they point to something greater that is to come. So here's the temple that would have existed at, at this time, during Jesus' time. And I want to show you something. This is the holy place right here, this building. This is the courtyard where the priests would prepare the sacrifices. This room right here 
They would enter in. This is part of the holy place. And you can see, probably not, but there's a number three right there. And it looks like it's blue. That would be the curtain. The veil. Behind that curtain is number two. That's the holy of holies. That's the holy of holies. So just keep that picture in your mind. The Holy of Holies behind the veil, behind the curtain, was the place where no one could go. Nobody. But one. The High Priest of Israel. And he could only go in there once a year. It was off limits to everyone else. Once a year, beloved. That's it. It was called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur in Hebrew. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. We find the instructions for this day in Leviticus 16. Now, without going into all the details, it was on this day that the high priest, the Day of Atonement, would offer a sacrifice to God according to God's specific instructions, how He told them to do it. And He would offer that sacrifice for the covering of the nation's sins of Israel's sins. It is also worth noting that the Holy of Holies was believed to contain the very presence of God. You'll see that even mentioned in Leviticus 16.2 where God takes His place above the mercy seat, above the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. Now, The problem with Israel's sacrificial system was that it did nothing, and we've already talked about this, to provide a way for the people, for the people to enter into God's presence. They were kept out by design. By design, beloved. Only the high priest could go into this special room beyond the curtain or veil that served as a wall of separation and entered the Holy of Holies into God's very presence and only He did that once a year. Beyond that, the sacrifice that the high priest made on behalf of the people, the blood of bulls and goats, was not able to permanently and finally remove the guilt of the people's sins. It only covered over it. But we know sin, beloved, is the great barrier between us and a holy God. Sin is the barrier. So how would sinners then ever be completely forgiven and reconciled to God and gain free and complete access to Him? How is that ever going to happen? Answer, Jesus Christ. And that's what we see as we read through these passages, and you'll see start to get the understanding here, I believe, as we read through these other passages in Hebrews, so I'm going to read through them without a lot of explanation, beginning in chapter 9 of Hebrews, verse 11 and 12, it says, But when Christ appeared... But when He appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, remember those good things to come? The law was a shadow of the good things to come. When Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. That might be confusing to you. Tent, tabernacle, the place where this worship took place. That was a permanent dwelling in the temple area when Israel was traveling through the land. They had a tabernacle where all of those things you saw were set up and they would do this sacrificial process and they would come once a year into the Holy of Holies. And here he says, He, that is Christ, entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, perfect temple, not made with hands. That is to say, not of the creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood. He entered the holy place once for all. And what did He do? Having obtained eternal redemption. 
Then we read in Hebrews 9:23 through 26, "Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these." Now he's talking about the sacrifice of animals in the blood, and he's talking about the temple sacrificial system, and he's saying it was necessary for the for the copies of the things in heaven, that is the temple. It is a copy of the the greater reality. It had to be cleansed. And he says, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, better than animal blood, better than bulls and goats. And here we go again. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy, shadow of the true one, but into heaven itself. Not to appear in the presence of now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, the end of the ages, He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. One more. Hebrews 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence... Beloved, this is insane. If you didn't understand Christ, this statement would be insane to the Jewish mind. We have confidence to enter the holy place. No one enters the holy place except the high priest, except once a year. But we now have confidence. Something's changed. We have confidence to enter into the holy place. How? By the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way which He inaugurated, which He opened for us through the veil. That is His flesh. See, I told you I could give you an easy answer. I want you to see the the bigger picture. The eternal and infinite Jesus acting as the great high priest sacrificially offered up His own blood. His own life. to secure eternal redemption, complete and infinite forgiveness of sins, and thereby permanently remove, permanently remove any and all barriers between saved sinners and their Creator, God. I believe the curtain in the temple that separated the people from God in a very real sense was torn, was ripped from top to bottom, was severed because it pictured the spiritual reality that Jesus' sacrifice opened the way to God for anyone and everyone who put their trust in Him as their substitute, as their Savior. One writer said it this way, it's destruction, the curtain, in the temple that I showed you a minute ago, its destruction signifies that at the death of Jesus, the veil or the curtain between God and humanity is removed. The Holy of Holies, which was believed to contain the very presence of Yahweh, a name, God's name, is made accessible not by the high priest's sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, but by the atonement of Jesus on the cross. Finally, another writer adds this, for it, the severing of that curtain, was a sign that Jesus' death ended the need for repeated sacrifices for sins and opened a new and living way of free and direct access to God, beloved. That's amazing. That's amazing. We have the sky's condition. 
We have the strange cry. We have the severed curtain. And finally, we have the soldier's confession. Look back at the text with me. Mark 15, verse 39. There God's Word says this, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. A centurion was a Roman officer who commanded upwards of 100 Roman soldiers. Centurion. This nameless centurion was apparently part of the death squad that we talked about in the weeks before that were in charge of Jesus' execution. We don't really know anything else about him. But Mark says he was facing Jesus, looking at him, watching over him, and he saw that in this way he breathed his last. He saw that in this way he breathed his last. In what way? Well, a few verses right before 1539, the text says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry. Not just a cry. A loud cry. And breathed his last. Okay, so when the centurion observed the way in which Jesus died, specifically that he uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, he then said, truly, this man was the Son of God. What is the connection between Jesus' actions right before his death and the centurion's reaction? Okay, let me explain it to you. Crucifixion gradually sucked the life out of its victims slowly, leaving them weak and helpless until they slowly and quietly expired. As I mentioned last week, suffocation was one of the cruel experiences at the cross. Asphyxiation. The stresses of the muscles and diaphragms put the chest into an inhaled position as they hung on the cross. The victim could draw air into his lungs but would have trouble exhaling. So to temporarily release the tension and cramping that had built up in his muscles, he would have to push himself up to excel, creating incredible amounts of pain due to the pressure it would put on his feet that were nailed to the cross. If the prisoner or victim didn't die of dehydration or infection from the open wounds and the nails, they would eventually become too exhausted to push up any longer and they would suffocate. But Jesus, just prior, just prior to expiring, was able, according to the text, to utter a loud cry, which may have been the words, It is finished! We don't know. But it may have been those words shouted out triumphantly, loudly. The point in all this is that the soldier or the centurion who had no doubt seen many men die on the cross before was taken aback by the strength that Jesus was able to exhibit at this point on the cross before passing. It was abnormal. It was unusual evidenced by his loud cry before he died. And he concluded, based on that and other things, that this man had to be more than just a mere man. But he must have been what he claimed to be. That is, the divine Son of God. No mere man could cry out that like that during the end of his crucifixion. 
Now, to what degree this Roman soldier understood all that his confession, truly this is the Son of God, to what degree he understood that, we don't know. Remember, the Roman centurion would have been a pagan. He would have worshipped a, a multiplicity of gods. He would have even worshipped the emperor as some form of a god. But maybe he did understand his profession. We're not sure. The text doesn't tell us. The centurion may have unknowingly expressed more than he even knew in his statement. One writer says this, What he, a pagan, really meant by the title Son of God has much been disputed. And that's true. But for Mark, the Gospel writer, the one writing this book, this is one of the two high points of his whole Gospel. You remember when we went way back, maybe you weren't here in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark tells you right there in the first chapter, this is what he's going to write about. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Mark sets out to prove those two things. Jesus is not only the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited One prophesied in the Old Testament, but He is also the very divine Son of God. And so for Mark, this is, this is his second high point. The first one was in Mark 8.29 when Peter, the Jew, confessed Jesus as the Christ. And here is the second high point here in this chapter 15 when the Gentile centurion confesses Jesus as the Son of God. Well, Here's the conclusion this morning, beloved. With all that, a lot of information for you to take in and Sometimes people come to church and they want, and I think it's good that they want application. They want to know how to apply this to their lives and so on and so forth. So they're looking for specific things they can do. Often they want advice, you know, how to, how to be married better, how to raise their kids, how to get along with others at work. You know what? Sometimes this is what we need to do. We just need to come to church and behold Jesus Christ for who He is and what He did. That's what we need to do. That's the motivation that drives us to live for Him. To stand back in awe of this One. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, beloved. He hung on a cross. He became the sin Bearer. He suffered the holy wrath of Almighty God against humanity's sin. Against my sin. He endured the trauma and agony of being forsaken by His Father. And as a result, He courageously and victoriously opened the way for salvation and never-ending fellowship with God for everyone who chooses to enter in. This, beloved, is the Jesus we worship. This is the Jesus we bow down to. This is the Jesus we follow. This is the Jesus we give our lives to. This is the Jesus that we are to obey. This, beloved, is the Jesus that we as Christians will see one day face to face. And this is the Jesus we must tell others about. Beloved, Jesus has not been forgotten nor will He ever be. For in His final hour, the world was forever changed. For the great barrier between humanity and God was obliterated, destroyed, wiped out. And the way was made open for sinners to be reconciled to God by the great sacrifice of God's Son.
Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us. We are a people that are greatly distracted. Our minds easily go a thousand directions. And Father, often what we think about, what we labor over in our minds, what we, we spend countless hours considering or worrying about or analyzing are things that really do very little to lift us up and to motivate us to live for You. Father, help us to meditate this week on Jesus' final hour. Help us to see these significant events in all of their glory, to understand what they communicate to us, not only about who Jesus is, but about what He accomplished on our behalf on that cross. Father, may these truths Go deep, deep, deep down into our hearts as we think through them in our minds. And may they have their way with us as Your people. May they accomplish what they were intended to accomplish. That we might glory in Jesus Christ. And that we could not help but tell someone else about Him and about what He has done on behalf of sinners. It is in His glorious name that we come together this morning and that we pray. Jesus Christ. Amen.